Turn with me now in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. I want to read briefly from Hebrews chapter 10. Strange as it may sound, since we're doing a sermon series in Hebrews, we're only going to read this passage as context for our sermon passage, which is actually from the Psalms. It's the first Lord's Day of the month, so we're going to be looking at Psalm 73 this morning. And we'll turn there in just a moment to Psalm 73. But first, let's read from Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 11, and we'll read through verse 25. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 25. Hear now the word of the Lord. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man... After he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before... This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is remission of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brethren... Having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. But exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. Amen. The Holy Spirit here delivers to us an incredible picture of salvation. Jesus as a high priest and the Holy Spirit as a law. Jesus as high priest has like, unlike all other previous priests, delivered a sacrifice that was once. All Old Testament priests had to offer sacrifices repeatedly and continually. Not Jesus, he did it once and then he was done. Because unlike his predecessors, Jesus' sacrifice actually atoned for sin. Actually achieved the forgiveness of sin. But so too it says that the Holy Spirit was sent as a new law. That just as the Mosaic priesthood couldn't remove sin, so the Mosaic law couldn't sanctify sinners. But the Holy Spirit is to us, according to Jeremiah, the writing of the law on our hearts. That is, the Spirit dwells within us. He transforms us and makes us obedient to God in Christ. For this reason, the Holy Spirit says, 
Therefore, brothers, let us draw near. Since we have a God who is determined to love us, forgive us, and sanctify us, let us treat no sin as a barrier to our fellowship with our Father. He is determined to forgive. He is determined to make holy. So let us draw near with boldness and not be afraid. With this in mind, turn back to Psalm 73. Our Psalm of the Month is Psalm 73. Psalm 73. Hear again the word of the Lord. The Psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel. To such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there was no pangs in their death. But their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men. They are not plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore... His people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them, and they say, How does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. If I had said I will speak thus. Behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. There I understood their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors as a dream when one awakes. So Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved and I was vexed in mind. I was so foolish and ignorant I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. 
For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry, but it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. Amen and amen. Every dad knows the drill. It is the time to keep the baby quiet. It is the time to keep the baby entertained. It is the time to keep the baby distracted. Perhaps mom needs a shower. Perhaps mom needs a nap. And dad is in charge. But just as every dad knows the drill, dad also knows... It's an effort doomed to failure. Eventually, there is no distraction, no diversion, no substitution that will gratify that one great longing in the heart of every infant. Mom. And nothing less than mom is going to satisfy. In a similar way, Psalm 73 calls on us to be children in faith. Having one great desire that no earthly ambition will satisfy. Having one great longing that no selfish desire can compete with. To love God and to want Him. To believe that as a mother's care is exactly what the infant craves, so God's care is what we crave. And to know that we have it in Christ. Beloved, the truth of God for us in Psalm 73 is that God takes good care of you in this life and in death. God takes care of us in life and death. So draw near to Him. In life and in death, draw near to Him. Let's look at the psalm together. Notice that Asaph begins the psalm with a statement of truth and a declaration of doubt. In verse 1, Asaph says, Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. Asaph says, It is true. God is good to Israel. God is good to His covenant people, those who live by faith in the promises. Those who trust God, who depend upon God, who rely upon God. They receive the goodness of God. It is true. Secondly, he says that those who are pure in heart. This is not a second and distinct category. This is a second description of the first category. That those who are pure in heart, that is Israel. Those who have one confidence. God's promises. Those who have one hope. God's fulfilling of those promises. Those who are pure in heart, they have a single focus and a single devotion. And it is God and His work in this world. Asaph says this is true. Asaph then says, but. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. By this, Asaph admits 
that this truth became doubtful for him. He wondered if God really was good to Israel. And if maybe it was better to leave the covenant. Maybe it was better to not walk in the ways of God. Maybe that law that Moses gave at Sinai wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. Maybe there's a better way to get through this world. And his feet nearly stumbled. His steps nearly slipped. Why the unsteadiness in his steps? Why the weariness in his feet? He says in verse 3, I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph looked at the world. And he saw the reality. The wicked do rather well. They prosper. In fact, in verse 4, he begins a series of lifelong experiences in reverse order, highlighting their prosperity. The wicked and the boastful have a painless death. On their deathbed, they are happy and peaceful and content. Prior to their deathbed, their strength is firm. They age without illness. They age without weakness. Right up to their deathbed, they are sturdy and firm and reliable. And then their death is peaceful and quiet. In verse 5, they are not troubled as other men do. They have Midas' touch. Whatever business they invest in prospers. Whatever endeavor they pursue, they enjoy success. They don't have the troubles that beset so many humans. And then... They are not plagued as other men do. They know no illness, no weakness. They go from birth to death in the very vigor of their physical being. In the success of all their ambition. Asaph looks out at the world and says, You know what? It's true. God is good to Israel. But it sure doesn't look like it. Because it looks like everybody else is doing well and Israel's not. It looks like everyone else is prospering. Now, on the one hand, it seems an easy thing to look at this passage and go, Asaph, he's kind of a weirdo, huh? And to skip the fact that this scripture is a mirror to our soul, is it not? Friends, let's not piously pretend that we do not doubt the promises of God. Let us not piously pretend That there are experiences in life that make us wonder, is God really good? If you have not struggled with the problem of evil, you've probably grown up in a rather insulated middle class American life. Where you haven't seen children die. There is evil. And it throws a shadow before our eyes over the goodness of God. And Asaph does not hide this fact from us. And God does not deny us a psalm that speaks to those doubts, that speaks to those worries and those cares. Here's a passage of scripture to sing when you become unsure about the goodness of God. Now before Asaph begins to settle the doubt, before Asaph provides us with a solution to the problem, he indulges a little more in the reason for his doubt. He says, beginning in verse 5, 
or verse 6, Therefore, pride serves as their necklace, violence covers them like a garment. That is to say, these prosperous wicked do so well in this world that they don't even bother to conceal their sinfulness. Their selfish endeavors, they wear like a necklace around this great big bling so that all the world can see they are proud of who they are. They are proud of what they are pursuing and what they are doing. They are the definition of themselves. They are the definers of reality. And they will pursue a world of their making. They are gods and they will wear it around their necks so that all the world can see. Further, their violence is like their garments. They will boldly walk through the world showcasing their abusive triumphs. Yes, it is on the heads and backs of the poor that I parade my success, but that's okay. I am doing well. This is not an unfamiliar thing, is it? A depravity that is flaunted in the world. Their eyes bulge with abundance. Their hearts have more than they could wish. These two organs of covetousness and lust. The eyes that look and say, I want that. In fact, we have a slogan for this, don't we? We use it on our children. Your eyes are bigger than your belly. Because you have filled up your plate with so much food that you can't contain it. Their eyes are bulging. They want more than they could possibly acquire. Was it not Rockefeller who was asked when he had billions and billions how much money would be enough? And he answered, a little more. His eyes were bigger than his wallet. There was never enough. Likewise, their hearts have more than they could wish. I thought of how to illustrate this point and... How many of you have houses full of things you have not touched or seen in years? How many of you own toys and stuffies you haven't played with in years? How many of you have more than your hearts could wish? More than your hands could handle? Yes, we live in an indulgent world. We live in a proud and violent world and they scoff speak wickedly concerning oppression. They make jokes about it. They don't don't simply recognize that their prosperity depends on the oppression of the poor. They know that. They celebrate it. They make jokes about it. They tease the poor. They say, if you worked harder. They say, if you just had an opportunity. They make all kinds of excuses for their own selfish self-indulgence. They speak loftily. The words that come out rise up to the heavens and their mouth is against the heavens itself. Their tongue, in the, in the blue psalter that we'll sing in a little bit, it says that their tongue parades around the world. What an incredible metaphor. Their boasts go out far and wide And everyone all the way up to the heavens and everyone out to the farthest ends of the earth must listen to them. If that is not a beautiful, poetic, haunting metaphor for social media, I don't know what is. Everyone must listen to me. Here's my 15 seconds of fame. This is an apt reflection on our world. 
He speaks to us and says, as we drown in this society of sin, as we suffer under these things, notice most condemningly, this is what Asaph is jealous of. When he paints this picture, doesn't it seem odd that we would be jealous of such wickedness, of such sinfulness? And yet, isn't that our temptation? That we, as we go through this world, look through at these people and see their triumph. And we see their welfare. And we see their prosperity and their power and their privilege. And we go, I want to live like that. Ignoring the wickedness through which they have achieved it. And we are tempted to depart from the ways of God, which seem so often to be impoverishing us. To pursue the ways of the world that seems so enriching to them. Is this not a real temptation? If you still doubt, let me give you one illustration that proves it is a real temptation. A serious temptation. And not too serious for you. For your Savior was in the wilderness alone. And Satan came to him and tempted him. And said to him, if you will bow down to me, I will give you all the nations of the world. I will give you the prosperity and the power and the privilege. I will give you all the riches. I will give you all the goodness. Just don't go through the cross. Go through me. And your Savior said, no, the cross is how we do it. Self-sacrifice and self-denial is how we do it. Love for others. That's how we do it. And this is what Jesus calls us to in Psalm 73. It is then that the psalmist Asaph comes to his heart-rending conclusion. That those who have drunk up the waters of the cup. Whose people return again and again to the same place. This metaphor seems to mean that. All the old get to be buried in the same gravestone and all the young get to come into this world prosperous. That is to say, from generation to generation, these wicked seem to prosper. They say, does the Most High know? Does God know? They pretend there is no God who will call them into account. They are always at ease, always increasing in riches. And so Asaph concludes with this heartbreaking summary Surely my heart is innocent in vain. This godliness business isn't worth doing. Surely my hands are without bloodshed to no purpose. Nothing good has come from resisting sin. All day long I have been plagued and I have been chastened every morning. I have disciplined myself to resist sin. I have held out against temptation. To what purpose? To what end? My heart is clean. My hands are pure. And yet, it seems without value. It seems to be endless. They prosper. And Israel does not. And I do not. But Asaph realizes something in verse 15. If this is my conclusion... If this is what I teach, if this is what I put into my psalm and hand over to the Levitical choirs to sing in the temple, if this is what my lesson is, I would be untrue to the generations of your children. I would not be keeping faith with what Abraham believed. I would not be keeping faith with what Moses taught. 
I would not be keeping faith with the covenant promises of God, which are yea and amen to generation after generation. Asaph realizes that he's stuck on the horns of a dilemma. Everything he sees contradicts everything he hears. His life experience is not confirming the promises of God. Does that ever resonate for you? How many of us are praying for things that are good and they're not coming? How many of us are longing for blessings and they're not coming? And we suddenly feel this great tension that Asaph describes. That when I look at the world, God doesn't look good. But he said he was good. But Noah said he was good. And Abraham said he was good. And Moses said he was good. And Joshua said he was good. And from generation to generation, each generation of Israel has confessed he is good. What am I missing? He turns to verse 16. When I thought how to understand this. How to reconcile the promise of God with the providence of God. How to bring together God's word with God's works. I thought it is too painful for me. I can't do this. He checks out of the great, I'm going to use my, I went to seminary word, epistemological dilemma. It means how do we know what is true? How do we know that when God says, I am good to Israel, it is true? Because if we rely only on our experience, we're going to end up like Asaph, worried and anxious and depressed. Because our experience does not always confirm that promise. What if we rely only on our reason? Is this logical? Is this consistent? This too will fail us. No, Asaph now turns to the one thing that gives hope in the most hopeless situation. The one thing that awakens faith in the most doubting heart. Until I went to the sanctuary of God. You know why we doubt? Because we look at the world and the self. You know why Asaph stopped doubting? He looked at God. He looked up. Who are you? He went into the sanctuary and there he saw the giant bronze lavier full of water. And he said, ah, there is cleansing from sin in God. He went through and he saw the altar where the animals were sacrificed. And he saw the blood running red and he said, ah, there is forgiveness of sin. And he went into the entryway and he saw the table laden with the bread of presence that signified God's warm welcome. And he said, ah, there's friendship with God. And he couldn't get into the most holy place because he wasn't a priest, a high priest. But he could see the veil over it and know that by faith behind it was the Ark of the Covenant, the fulfillment of the law of Moses, the holiness of God. And he said, all right, there it is. God is with us. 
Then I understood their end. Then when I saw God and I knew who he was and I knew what he was doing in the world, then I understood that all that prosperity and all that power is simply a slippery place. Have you ever considered that? Poverty is a really secure place. It's hard to get out of. Riches are a really slippery place. It's a really easy place to get out of. Same with power. It's really hard to lose your powerlessness. It's really easy to lose your power. Just ask every president every four to eight years. Friends, it is a slippery place that we have been jealous of, envious of. You cast them down to destruction. They are brought to desolation in a moment. All that lifelong, all that generation long building and consuming and acquiring ends in terror and destruction. Like a dream, they snap out of success and find their lives a failure. Like a dream, they snap out of power and find themselves vulnerable. Like a dream, everything goes away and they lose it all. The Lord awakes and despises their image. Their selfishness, their depravity, their self-indulgence. It is in worship and in the sanctuary that when Asaph comes near to God and sees him as he really is, a holy, just, good God, that he understands, okay, that's how this world is working. Okay, that's what you're doing. You're bringing them to judgment. But what about Asaph? There, in the temple columns, in the folds of the fabric of the tabernacle, he says in verse 21, my heart was grieved. Literally in the Hebrew, because I love the earthiness of this, my kidneys were pierced. It is a graphic image of pain. Have you guys wrestled with kidney stones before? It is a lot of pain. And I was in pain. My heart was grieved. But this is a different kind of pain. No longer is he pained by the doubts. Now he is pained by repentance. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. I went walking through the world pretending God won't bring these guys into judgment. I went wrestling with my appetite and ambition, wanting success and power and every good thing and wanting to fill myself up the same way they were filling themselves up. And that was foolish and ignorant. I forgot you're there in heaven and you're judging the world and I forgot you're going to come. I pretended like you weren't there. Nevertheless, I am with you. Friends, on this hangs all faith. On this hangs all hope. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. I look upon the world and I see contradictions of the promises of God and I think to myself, is it true? And I go, where do I go for an answer? I go to worship. I listen to a sermon. I eat at the supper. I sing some psalms and I suddenly realize that the one thing that all this earthly distraction has blinded me to is the fact that I've been walking like this the whole time. 
Monday through Saturday, through every fear, through every anxiety, through every sorrow, and through every sin, he's never let me go. I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. This is what we see when we come to worship. This is what we see when we open our Bible. This is what we see when we join in the fellowship of the saints and come to the supper. We realize He is with us. He is holding us. He is guiding us straight into glory. And you will receive me to glory. Now, I'd like to think that when Asaph originally writes this, what he means is, you will welcome me into the most holy place that I can't get into. That Asaph, in his mind, is walking past that bronze lavier, past that altar, into the folds of the tabernacle, past the bread of presence, and he's coming right up to that veil that he can't transgress. And he's like, one day though, one day, that veil's coming down. And I'm walking right into the most holy place. He's got me by the right hand, and here I stop now. But the day is coming where I don't stop. And I sprint right into glory. Of course, if that's what Asaph is thinking, it still is a fantastic image of what we ought to be thinking about death, isn't it? That we go walking hand in hand with our Heavenly Father through every sin and sorrow, through every doubt and fear. And as we walk through this life, hand in hand with Him, we walk right into the grave, hand in hand with our Father, straight into glory. And there we enjoy our Father forever. Verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? Asaph has learned his lesson. Envy of the rich, envy of the powerful is to no purpose. It creates nothing but anxiety and stress. A desire to achieve and to succeed is to no purpose. It creates nothing but selfishness and sin. But if I have one desire, if I am pure in heart, I want to see God, then I have heaven. Then I have heaven. Because He is my heaven. There is nothing in heaven I want. Have you heard so many people who will speak of heaven? I can't wait to meet David. Are you kidding me? I can't wait to to meet Jesus. To get to heaven and see God. Who's David? Yeah, he's cool too. But to go and to see God. And no one else on earth do I desire. Nothing else on earth do I desire. My heart is entirely consumed with one ambition. To know God and to love Him as He really is. And He's given me that one desire in His Word. And He's given me that one desire in His Supper, in Baptism, in the fellowship of the saints. This is why our feet don't slip. This is why we don't wander away like sheep going astray. Because I have one desire. And it's met in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is what Psalm 73 trains us to do so that when our hearts and our flesh fail, so that when we in temptation succumb to sin, we nevertheless find that God Himself is a rock. He is sure and strong and our portion. 
So that when we succumb to sorrow and we lose hope and say, I can't take another day, our flesh and our heart fail. But God, we find, is strong and a portion forever. And so that when our bodies breathe their last, and our hearts beat their last, and everything goes dark, we find that God is a rock and our portion forever. For this reason, Asaph concludes, those who are far from you perish. Those who are far from you perish. Those who spend their whole life getting every good thing, but not God, perish. It's all for naught. Now this isn't just Asaph who's teaching this, is it? Jesus himself will say, what does it gain a man to gain the world but lose his soul? Asaph in like manner will say, but it is good for me. But it is good for me. The one good I want from life. The one good thing this heart desires. Is to draw near to God. Now you have a wonderful challenge as psalm singers. It's a great joy. Not right away. But after the supper. We're going to sing Psalm 73C. And you have to ask yourself a question as I pray, as we sing 73B, and as we eat the supper. Can you say that? Can you actually stand up in this assembly, open Psalm 73C, and sing? I have one desire, to know God. I have one hope, and His name is Christ. And it is good for me to draw near to God. If this is true, if this is what we say, truly God is good to Israel. And so truly it is good for Israel to draw near to God. Then what are you doing next Sunday? And the Sunday after, and the Sunday after, and the Sunday after. From Sunday to Sunday, all the way to glory. What are you doing tomorrow morning? Tomorrow evening? Will you gather your family for worship? Will you gather yourself for worship? Will you recognize it is good to draw near to God? Dear friends, put your trust in the Lord. Put your trust in the Lord and declare His works with us. God takes good care of you in life and in death. Draw near to Him. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we rejoice before you in this beautiful psalm. We give you thanks for this beautiful day. And our Father, we are so grateful for our beautiful Savior. For the wisdom that Asaph, through your Holy Spirit, has left for us in these words. That we might look upon our Father in heaven and see his promises are yea and amen in Christ Jesus. And see his spirit is stirring within us. To understand that not all that we understand is the sum total of this world. And not all that we see is what you are doing. But through your spirit we have faith. Faith to 
apprehend, to hold fast to a reality we do not yet know in full, but have in this small taste. And so, Father, we pray that through this psalm, we might indeed taste and see that you are good. And we pray that as we come to the supper in a few moments, we might again taste and see that you are good and find our faith confirmed in Christ. Father, we give you thanks for these things and ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.